Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Two weeks after turning age 32, life as she knew it changed dramatically for Jennifer Levin. A single phone call thrust her into the ranks of America's millennial caregivers, 18 to 34-year-olds who make up nearly 25% of the nation's 43.5 million family caregivers. Complicating Jennifer's situation was the fact that, as an only child, she had no siblings to lean on during her caregiving journey. She wrote about her experience in a recent article for the digital edition of Cosmopolitan magazine titled, I Became My Father's Parent at 32. Jennifer Levin joins us from New York today. Jennifer, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So New York is your home, but uh, you got that phone call I referred to earlier when you were living in Los Angeles. Tell us how you wound up in L.A. and a bit about your life there. Sure. I went to college at the University of Michigan and graduated in 2003 with aspirations to work in screenwriting. And so although I was from New York and that exists a little bit here and is growing, which is great to see, you really have to go to Los Angeles to start your career, or so I had been told. And so I moved right after graduation to L.A., and began a career there working in agencies and then working my way up into television programs and lived in L.A. for almost 12 years. So what did your friends know um, about your dad's health? You wrote about that in the piece, and you, you described your father's health to them in a sort of vague way, but in a way that was kind of easy to digest. What did they know about your dad's health? What they knew at the time was that he was diagnosed with a disease called PSP, which is progressive supranuclear palsy. PSP presents itself early on as Parkinson's, and so a lot of times there's that misdiagnosis of having Parkinson's. So at first, we noticed some changes in my dad's behavior and that he was falling a lot, and the neurologist said Parkinson's, which was incredibly hard to wrap our heads around because... My dad had never been sick. Mm. So that felt very alien to us as a family, or for me particularly, and I'm sure for my dad. So my friends knew that he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And then as it evolved into PSP, which is so degenerative and moves pretty quickly, they knew that he had something like Parkinson's, that things had become tougher, that it was hard for me in L.A. I think that they saw that, that I... I was very close with my dad, so we spoke on the phone every day. And mm. so when I talked to my friends, I'd focus more on something funny my dad said or mm. how all the ladies in assisted living or the nursing home were hitting on him. You know, things <laughs> that felt more like real life uh-huh. and not disease. And as it progressed, and I think it weighed more heavily on me where, as a lot of caregivers know, when you allow yourself a moment to cry and in private or 
you know, you're processing what's going on. Very few friends saw that side and really knew, I would say probably no one knew just how degenerative the disease had become. And, and I think they knew that he was in a wheelchair at a certain point, but a lot of details, almost all details, I really didn't share at all. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that your dad was in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. Was he living in the city, in New York City at that time? And how old was he? Yes. Um, he moved into the nursing home when he was maybe 78 or 79. I don't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. It became an obvious decision for us because he was living in assisted living at the time, which was great in helping him manage medications and doctor's appointments. But you have to be pretty independent to live there. Right. And they don't monitor your coming and going. You have your own apartment with your own key. And at that point, the falls became so serious that it was really a matter of life or death at a certain point, you know, um, that he could fall inside his apartment and nobody would know. Right. One time he did fall and was in his apartment on the floor for quite a while and was found because I was calling him and he wasn't picking up the phone and I asked him to check on him. Hmm. And when they checked, they'd knock on the door and he'd say, oh, I'm fine. And nobody entered oh. until we insisted that they did. Oh my. And you can really kill yourself in a fall, oh, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And when you have a disease like PSP that affects your balance so much, falling becomes so regular. And my father was so stubborn, just so independent and refused help all the time, whether it was making his bed or whatever, that if he wasn't watched after 24 hours, mm-hmm. he would try and get out of bed alone, do everything by himself. And it was just too dangerous. We needed more than, you know, somebody helping him necessarily. We needed eyes on him mm-hmm. at first. Mm-hmm. So when he went into the assisted living facility, were you still living in LA at that point? I was. Okay. I was. So how did you handle his going into an ALF after, I mean, you were close to your dad. Your parents are divorced. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. So was that really depressing for you that your dad went into an ALF? And how did that play out? Assisted living, I thought was great. He had been living outside of the city at that point. He had moved upstate for a little while mm-hmm. and this brought him back to the city. And he was so independent and in such great shape at that time Uh that it really was a nice little community, I thought, Mm -hmm. where we had somebody who could help him with medications and all those things. But he could leave at any time that he wanted to, go buy his own groceries if he chose to. Uh, You know, it was really independent. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say the bigger switch happened when he moved into a nursing home. That emotionally was a much different thing. And that was after you got the phone call? And tell us about that phone call that you wrote about. That phone call was pretty devastating because at that point, assisted living for insurance reasons couldn't have him living there anymore unless he had constant supervision, Mm -hmm. which to pay for, you know, you pay for assisted living, pay for that on top of it is impossible. Right. You're a gazillionaire. And so... We found out that he couldn't go back while he was in a short-term rehab facility. Mm-hmm. And so it was that we had to find a place for him to move to imminently. And he couldn't even return to his apartment. And that emotionally is so terrible. For him, I think, you know, for us, he was really coming to terms with the fact that his disease had moved into the next stage. It also meant that he now had to be in a wheelchair almost full-time, which we didn't really feel he needed. Yeah. And I think 
pushed back his progress a little bit mm. by having him so sedentary all the time. And that was when I had to, you know, fly into New York. Um, my mom came with me to tour different nursing homes to figure out the best place for him to live. Mm-hmm. You wrote in the article that when your mom called you, it was upsetting, but you weren't that surprised. Was your mom, mm-hmm. what was her emotional state when she called you? Was she freaked out or what? No, I, she was sounding calm. The way she describes it is that she was in such shock uh-huh. that it was happening because he had fallen so many times before and had been in short-term rehab so many times before that at first this felt like another one of those times. Like, mm-hmm. oh God, you know, this is hard keep exercising, keep staying strong. And we have that routine down of how to get him back and kind of manipulate doctors into giving him extra physical therapy to get him back into a place where he could continue being relatively independent. And this was a moment where that choice wasn't ours anymore. And so she describes it as her being in shock. She sounded calm to me over the phone, which I think she was doing for herself, for me and for him. But that was a pretty shocking thing for us especially for somebody who's so independent. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around in a place like that. Was your mom in New York City as well? Yeah, my mom and dad um, lived not too far from each other. When they were divorced and I was growing up, I could kind of walk between their apartments. And my dad had remarried afterwards and had been remarried for years, and then that marriage ended. And when he became ill, so to speak, my mom really helped him out or would visit him a lot and um, especially as he got sicker and I wasn't there as much as I wanted to be would go visit him in the nursing home a lot he would come over to our house my mom's house for holidays with him it actually brought us all closer again Hmm. which was pretty incredible to see that's nice so you grew up in Manhattan you went out to LA your dad started to fall more after he was in the assisted living facility for a while. And then you got that phone call that you wrote about, and suddenly you were shopping for nursing homes with your mom. Um, right. And then you became your dad's healthcare proxy. What is involved in that? Tell us about that process. It took a while for that to happen. That was not an immediate okay. thing. That was something that I really had nothing to do with. It was a matter of putting things in place if they were necessary, if things got worse, if he were to end up in the hospital, having legal things put into place so that we had some control over what was going on. I had already assumed his finances by that point and dealing with insurance and stuff. Mm -hmm. The proxy was more, you know, if it came down to it in the hospital, who's Uh going to make decisions. And that was something that my mom really pushed him to sign so that, you know, I think there's there's so much emotion behind being ill and it's easy to kind of sweep it under the rug. Mm-hmm. And we did that a lot of times to try and continue feeling normal. Mm-hmm. But that was something that my mom knew had to be taken care of. And I think it took a little while to get him to do it, but he signed that. And I wasn't there for that. I just knew about it. And because I'm an only child, it was obvious that it was going to happen. That, for me, had some emotions behind it because it gets you thinking about the worst case scenario, even though it's not arrived. It gets you thinking about that. And I've spoken with some elder care attorneys after all this, after the fact, who say that it's best to do that 
as early on as possible, even before the presence of illness, just because when illness is present, it makes it so much more of a loaded conversation oh, yeah. to have. And, right. You know, so, but it's something that has to happen, really. Be, uh, I encourage everybody to do it. Right. But it's so common, isn't it? Even super intelligent, capable people just don't want to deal with it. We don't want to think about this stuff. And so it's very common, I think, to postpone those kinds of big decisions. It sounds like you mm-hmm. did it at a pretty good time. I mean, it could have gotten worse, right? It could have gotten worse. Yeah. yeah. And I'm glad that we did it at all, for sure. Now, was and there... I'm also glad that I wasn't there for that conversation. <laughs> you were... So how... <laughs> did your mom have that conversation with your dad? Yeah, more than once. Oh, and really? And then eventually I had to do it. Yeah, you know, I think she had to broach the subject first and get him kind of plant the seed in his head. And did she share with you what those conversations were like and how they went? She did somewhat, to be honest. I would always end the conversation. It was as difficult probably for me as it was for him. Um, yeah. And like I said, I, I didn't want to think about it. It's so hard when you're dealing with illness to not get overwhelmed by it, that then to let your head go to those places, even for a practical matter, mm-hmm. and even though it's not happening right now, mm-hmm. it's so overwhelming that I just, I would always end the conversation. Well, especially at your age, you're not, you're not a child, but you're, you know, mm-hmm. you're younger than a lot of caregivers. This is something that you wrote about in the article, uh, which is mm-hmm. how is being a millennial or a Gen X caregiver different than being a baby boomer caregiver? You want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, there are so many ways. First of all, I would say that we are at an age when we are expected to be building our lives, careers families, getting married, having children. A lot of people put in this position at a young age haven't had kids yet. And the first time they're really assuming responsibility for somebody else is for a parent. Mm -hmm. And that role reversal can be really shocking and play on your emotions aside from the stress that you're dealing with in taking care of them. So there's that. And in your career, especially as a young woman, if you're trying to, you know, break this glass ceiling or, um, you know, you're young, you're expected to have a ton of energy and put in all the hours to admit a priority outside of the office, which your family member is a priority. It just is as much as you care about your own life and your career. Mm -hmm. To admit that at work feels like a huge shortcoming. I spoke with one young woman who's a primary caregiver for both of her parents, Mm -hmm. and she told me how opportunities passed over her at work for promotion because People at work knew about her situation at home, and her bosses said, we don't want to put anything more on your plate, and gave the opportunities to a coworker. And Mm. she felt totally jilted because she told me, I've proven that I can juggle so much. You know, why why would you give it to somebody who um, doesn't know how to balance life like the way that I've shown that I can? So I think that the whole work aspect, I really never told anybody at work because for me, work was my distraction. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you have to take time off of work or if you have to leave to take somebody to a doctor's appointment, people lose their jobs that way without Mm -hmm. paid family leave. And it can affect the money that we put into our retirement savings down the road. I mean, there's like a loss that's starting to be shown by the time this generation hits retirement age, how much money they've put into raising a family versus taking care of a family member. And taking care of a family member, that cost financially outweighs having children. That's crazy. I also think that at a young age, a younger age, 
we have less of our peers talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in your 50s or 60s and you're dealing with an ill parent, that's kind of a rite of passage, so to speak. Yeah. I know, you know, my mom and her friends talk about taking care of their parents and we've seen it happen as we age with grandparents and it feels natural when somebody's of that age going through it and people talk to their peers more about it. Where now we have generations that their parents have them later in life or people are living longer with disease and they're living longer at home with disease. And you have people with veteran spouses that need to be cared for because this isn't just physical illness. This is mental illness too. You know, people Mm -hmm. aren't really assuming that their peers are going through it. And that causes these feelings of isolation, which lead to withdrawal and maybe negative coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And everybody kind of stays quiet about it. And when you look at social media, which we're also primed to do, I constantly have my phone in my hands when I'm on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People aren't presenting that version of them. I read that in your article. What was the version of yourself that you were presenting? The fun stuff. You know, Uh um, it's not that I was trying to impress anybody, but I think that it's, you know, you try and focus on the fun moments that you're having. Mm -hmm. And I would frequently tell people about time that I was spending with my dad, but I wasn't telling people, you know, oh, by the way, I also had to cut up his food or Mm -hmm. he choked three times trying to drink a milkshake or, you know, I wasn't sharing that stuff because it's depressing. And for me, and you kind of start to think maybe it'll be depressing for friends to hear that too. And I was very protective of his dignity. Mm-hmm. So you start to present yourself online, at least, in a way that is much more glossy. And everybody's kind of just reading that version of each other mm-hmm. without realizing that so many of their peers are going through the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. I want to make it clear to our listeners that your father is no longer living. I was sorry to read that in the article that your dad passed away a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did this affect your work experience? You know, work experience for me, I would say, is unusual compared to the average person because I've worked in television production and frequently would have six months at a time off while we're on hiatus. And so while maybe in a different position, I would have taken another job Mm -hmm. during that hiatus period, I didn't. And I used that opportunity to go home. And I wanted to be in New York and see my friends there. But really, I wanted to be present for my dad and share time with him, even when he wasn't as ill as he became. Mm -hmm. And I would say that work was impacted for me more on a personal level, where I I started to realize that it maybe meant less than I had built it up to be in my head. Hmm. I think work is incredibly important and the contributions that you make, but the important thing to me really at the end of the day was my family, Mm -hmm. was taking care of my dad and being there for him. So as much as I was giving to work, I could have taken that opportunity to work more and, you know, be there all the time. But instead, I wanted to be home. I wasn't taking vacations outside of that. Um, You know, my vacation time was always time in New York. Mm -hmm. And as my dad got more ill, I started to feel like if I went somewhere else, like if I saved money and went to Europe for a week or did whatever, that he would think that I wasn't coming home or I wasn't there. I started to think about how my absence would affect him emotionally. So there was always, my decisions were always done with him at the back of my mind in some way, whether it was really for him or it was for my own peace of mind 
Right. It's hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> Did you know that his life expectancy was short? You wrote, you, we didn't see it coming when your mm -hmm. father died. Yeah, I think, you know, I would read on the Cure PSP message boards, people's experience with the disease mm -hmm. and, you know, how the symptoms progress, what that means for different stages of it. And I would perceive things worsening, but there's so much that's not known about this disease and people experience it in ways that are across the board that it seems like a lot of experiences aren't exactly all the same and you may not develop all of the symptoms. It really felt like, okay, we're going to keep fighting this. You know, you're going to keep exercising, keep doing this, keep doing that to try and just prolong life for as long as possible. And so when all of a sudden it happened and he got really ill at first, it seemed like, oh, this is another one of those alarms that we'll work our way out of. And this one's worse than the ones before it, but maybe this is the new normal. Mm -hmm. And then it became evident that it wasn't. So it, it was that sort of thing, really. Mm -hmm. It was, it was, you know, it's going to happen. And you know that the disease doesn't have a long shelf life. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, I didn't see it coming in the way that maybe would have been obvious with different lenses on. Mm -hmm. And how old was he when he died? 80. 80. Okay. And at what point did you realize there really wasn't enough time or resources to keep going back and forth between New York and LA? And uh, when did you move back to New York? I moved back to New York after his death, actually. Oh, okay. When I was staying in New York, I'm lucky enough that my family's here, so I have a place to stay. It wasn't like the expense for me was in flying. It right. wasn't in having to get another hotel and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, in that way, you know, it's lucky that I could, as long as I had the time available away from work, I could manage that between the two. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I wasn't working. So it was possible to be done. Do you miss LA? Was it hard for you to I leave? Do. Was it hard for you to leave? It was hard to leave. Um, it was easy in the sense that I think, like a lot of New Yorkers, I had kind of always been waiting to go back. I thought that I'd live in LA for a year and in my naive state of mind that I'll be there for a year, I'll make all of my contacts and then I'll transfer that to New York. I mean, uh -huh. that's insane. That's, that's the career advice of a 22-year-old talking <laughs> for sure. And um, I then after 12 years kind of felt, especially after he died, I thought this is where I want to be. I want to be at home right now. I need to kind of pack up and do what's good for me in this moment. Mm -hmm. And it felt like that was it. And so it was hard in leaving friendships behind and things like that. And I do miss it. And I do visit. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful that I have this life I can kind of drop back into. And my friends and career are like kind enough to me that they accept me every time I'm back. And mm -hmm. me. Uh -huh. I know that you miss your dad terribly. You, write, you wrote about that. But is some mm -hmm. part of you relieved that he's not in pain anymore? Um, I guess. I think it'll be another 10 years before I can really answer that. Right. And maybe even never. I think that not living in the middle of disease anymore, mm -hmm. I now have the eyes on the full picture mm -hmm. of his long life, very healthy before the disease. And that the disease in retrospect happened so fast. It was it like two like years it. maybe yeah. that seemed very long. Mm -hmm. But in retrospect, whoa, the way he started and the way he ended were so different that um, I think I'm still wrapping my head around that and in shock that it ever happened. Right. So it's, it's hard for me to answer. So what were some of the lessons from your father during your care for him? You alluded to sort of a greater appreciation for your family, 
But what are some of the yeah. things that you learned from your dad during the time that you cared for him? Well, I think something we all learned or tried to learn is patience. You know, as I mentioned, my dad's totally stubborn. And between me, my mother, and him, it's three incredibly impatient people who now <laughs> You are, after are, all, New Yorkers. <laughs> yeah, totally. And New Yorkers through and through. And bossy New Yorkers mm-hmm. who are used to kind of, you know, opening your mouth to get what you want. And I'll say that that helps in dealing with disease because yeah. when you turn your life over to a nursing home, you really have to stay so proactive in mm-hmm. as good as intentions are in making sure that all the treatment that's necessary is given, that, you know, the things he likes are present. Um, you know, being a Boston New Yorker definitely helped in those situations. <laughs> but I'd say, you know, being all of a sudden thrust into this disease where now he's moving very slowly and he's speaking very slowly and you just can't move the same way you once did. Mm-hmm forced us to really have to move more slowly, you know, to have patience in listening and in doing things and to appreciate, I don't know that less is the right word, but, you know, my dad and I would always just sit around talking and didn't need the TV on or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And it was definitely more hours of doing that. So I would say that we began to digest time differently in a way that's a nice lesson in life to slow down sometimes Mm -hmm. and to learn that you're not always in control and how do you make the best of that? And how do you learn how to pump the brakes on trying to take control? When is that good and when is that not, you know, maneuvering that? I would Mm -hmm. say the patience thing was the biggest Mm -hmm. and prioritizing each other. and, And I would say too, how I connect to people dealing with illness and his death and how hard it was just to, you know, push him down the street in a wheelchair. It's hard. It looks so easy. Yeah. It is not. Uh-huh. And I see people in the street now walking with walkers or just uh-huh. having a difficult time. And I'm so aware on how hard it is to get out of the house and to motivate yourself as simple as it is to go to the grocery store. Just that act of that one errand when you're having mobility issues can take you a couple hours. And so when I see people, I really think about that, about their experience. I'll help open a door, which we all should anyway. But I Mm -hmm. think that I stop more and I stop rushing for somebody else who I recognize also maybe having a harder time just to help them out. Because I remember people helping me try and pull his wheelchair over a curb or, you know, if he had a hard time getting up off a bench, help me stand him up. Um, And that really... It helps. You need that. It's hard yeah. to do this stuff alone. Yeah. Can you think of an example of a time when your patience was really tested with your dad? Yeah. Um, his disease, from everything we know about it, makes you very impulsive. Mm-hmm. And he would constantly, this is such a small thing, but would drink too much from a straw, a cup, whatever it was, however Mm -hmm. he was drinking, Mm -hmm. because his brain wasn't registering, okay, it's time to swallow. And, you know, that leads to choking, which is your greatest fear, you could die. And it was constantly, don't drink so much, don't drink so much. Every meal, every snack, everything, slow down, slow down, slow down. And that sort of stuff, you know, that's a daily thing, and it's so small, but it preys on your greatest fear. Mm -hmm. And those are moments when you're yelling at the disease in a way to slow down. Mm-hmm. He he doesn't really get what's happening. And it's hard to explain. 
express to somebody, stop that when they don't know what they're supposed to be stopping. Hmm. And that feeling was hard. I can imagine. So why do you think it took you so long to speak with somebody about your caregiving experience? From the article, it sounds like you just really started talking about this. Why do you think it took yeah, so long? and it's so hard. I have to tell you. <laughs> yeah. I just came back from my therapist's office where I was like bawling for an hour. Oh, you could have saved like, it for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's tough. I yeah. really thought, I read a statistic of um, a third of millennials and Gen Xers who go through this. And I thought, wow, I felt so isolated and that I was the only one. And that is clearly not true. And being a big mouth New Yorker and a writer, <laughs> I thought, I want to write about this and at least have somebody relate to it so that they know they're not the only one. Feel comfortable announcing yourself. Or what's been very important to me is I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver until I read this study. Mm -hmm. I really thought those were home health aides or nurses. I had no idea that that's what I was doing. And when you Google caregiver, all of a sudden, there are so many resources that are available to you. So when you're not identifying as a community and as a member of that community, you really feel like you're going through it alone. It makes things so much harder emotionally and practically. Mm -hmm. So I felt like if I can just share this story and get out what I've figured out about it, let people digest this and realize that's them too and find resources. And I realized that because so many, so few people, I should say, talk about this in this age group. I set up just a Facebook group, it's private, for mm -hmm. anybody to join who wants to, mm -hmm. and kind of either announce yourselves and what you're going through and share your information, because I learned all this stuff, like apps that can order up a wheelchair accessible cab in New York. Things that when my father passed away, I thought, wow, I have all this information. What am I going to do with this? Mm -hmm. I should tell people about this. And other people have this experience, too, of wanting to share what they've picked up and also learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And so just building support. And even though I'm talking about it now, it's still so difficult. Yeah. I mean, this brings up so much hard stuff for me that I swallow a little bit so that I can talk to other people about it as, as they start to want to talk about it too and I think that's important and that's what keeps me talking about it is that it's helping other people or at least I hope it is but yeah. it has not become easier I have to say <laughs> I, I certainly appreciate it Jennifer well, are you concerned about who will care for you in the future oh god I haven't thought about it okay. I never thought about it <laughs> it becomes so much about other people, even though it's mm -hmm. your own emotional state. I think that's why people feel guilty talking about being caregivers, too. That that word guilt get, gets brought up so much mm -hmm. is because it's so much about the other person and their experience that I've never thought about it happening to me. Hmm. Well, how do you think that where's the guilt come in there? I mean, I'm confused a little bit by what you just said. Oh, sure. Uh, so many people, now that this article has come out, have reached out to me saying that they go through the same thing and have never told anybody because they feel guilty. And this word resonates with every single person that's reached out to me. And it, the, the reasons vary so much. I know that I felt guilty talking to anybody about it because I was very protective over my dad's dignity. And I mm -hmm. never wanted him to be thought of as a patient mm -hmm. because there was so much to his personality and who he was. And even having this article come out being centered around his illness bothers me on a certain level. Then I have, I spoke with one woman who's a caregiver who said she feels guilty talking about it because she doesn't want to depress her friends. You know, there are all these different reasons that people have brought up. They feel guilty 
I've really been giving a lot of thought to that lately about why we feel these feelings of guilt. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting in your article that you talked about that very subject and that you didn't discuss with, with, with your friends for a couple of different reasons. And it occurred to me that it was a really a double-edged sword because you, you're sort of withholding info both for your benefit but also at your own expense. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a real double-edged sword. Um, did it cross your mind to join a support group? My mom had suggested it at one point, and I really was so resistant to it because we dealt with this disease so much of just keep going with life. Okay, things are harder now, but we're still going to go to the movies. We're still going to go to the park and still enjoy each other. And now it's harder because I'm bringing cans of his protein drink in my purse to the movie theater and the certain straws that he's allowed to use you know, it becomes more difficult, but we're still going to do those things. And so much of it became about pushing aside what was hard Mm -hmm. just to make things feel normal, Mm -hmm. that if I had joined a support group, I felt like I was putting my vulnerability first Mm -hmm. and that any chink in my armor would have just dropped the whole thing. What a great point. That's such a great point. You know, I, I lived with my mom for three years after my father died and I didn't join a support group. I know it would have benefited me. I didn't even think about it. And I, I didn't realize until you explained it to me that that's probably why. I was so busy living the experience and putting mm-hmm. all of my emotional energy into that, that to go to a support group and relive it would have weakened me somehow, I think. And I needed that energy. Absolutely. And it's hard because now having come through the other side of it, I tell people, first off, join a support group. You know, don't shoulder this by yourself. Don't feel like you're alone. Right. But at the same time, Doing it over again, I don't know that I would have taken my own advice. I'm really not sure. Well, it's also hard to catch that caregiver when they have time. When do you have free time? Yeah. I mean, people say, you know, you need to make time for yourself. Well, that's all well and good. But the reality is there are only so many hours in the day. And it's very hard to make time for yourself. I know that it's mm-hmm. important. But, you know, again, <laughs> I'm. it's so funny because and this is getting a little off topic that I was reading even today about things that you should prepare for and how people should prepare for their later years and as a caregiver. And, you know, I'm so tired of reading recommendations. I'm so ready for some policy changes around this. So maybe yeah. that's a good segue to asking what is your view on how to make a dent in solving the caregiver crisis from a policy perspective? Policy perspective, I think we have to advocate as a group for paid family leave. Mm-hmm. I don't think that will solve all of the problems. Mm-hmm. You know, that definitely doesn't solve the emotional one. But right. if people felt like they could have an opportunity to take a couple of days here and there, no questions asked, to take somebody to a doctor's appointment or to deal with finding a nursing home for somebody or whatever it is, that would relieve so many people of stress. One um, elder care attorney that I spoke with said she believes that it will happen the way that maternity leave happened, but it's just going to be a matter of time and piggybacking on those efforts. Mm -hmm. So as we talk about paid family leave for, you know, maternity leave, paternity leave, we have to make sure that caregivers are included in that conversation. Mm -hmm. So what is the one thing that you would like people to know about folks in your age group, millennials and Gen Xers? I think that young adults, especially in today's political climate, are given a really bad rap of not being motivated, of mooching off their parents, living at home beyond the age that's appropriate. And really, statistically, a third of them are caring for family members. It's just not discussed. 
A lot of people are involved with philanthropy. It's just not discussed. A lot of people are living at home because they're taking care of somebody. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that it's because they're unemployed or whatever it is. So I would say that I think that this generation of young adults needs to be better understood a little bit more empathetically, that they're dealing with a lot and aren't as selfish as these social media postings present them to be. (laughs) And um, I think that they really need help and acknowledgement of what they're going through. Because mm-hmm. I think the more we talk about it, the more people become aware of that term caregiver. And like I said, realize that they're part of this community. Mm-hmm. And how about your mom? How's she doing? What's her health like? Oh, my mom's great. My mom is <laughs> traveling a lot and uh, she's retired and a swinging New York lady. <laughs> Good for her. All the time. Good for yeah, her. She's doing really well. Are you anticipating having to care for her? Oh, God. Yes, I I beg her, please remarry so that I don't have to do this all by myself again. But then potentially you'd have to care for two people, so yeah, careful what you true. wish for. That is true. <laughs> and what's next for you? Are you active on this issue? What are you up to? I am trying to become active. Now that I see that it struck a chord with people, people thanking me for speaking publicly about it because they haven't. I realized that I have to, you know, use my big mouth for good in a way. So <laughs> I was lucky enough to be invited to the Cure PSD Foundation yesterday to speak with people there about the disease that my dad had and how mm-hmm. they're reaching out to caregivers, mm-hmm. which was very cool for me um, to learn more about the disease at that level and other families that go through it. Mm-hmm. And um, because there's a link between a cure for PSP and a cure for Alzheimer's, they believe, I'm really just trying to recruit as many people as possible to talk about this because it affects, PSP affects so many people that don't realize it, but also caregiving does too. And I'm really just trying to build a rallying cry so that people will talk about it and feel a little bit better, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. And what is the link for the closed, it's a closed Facebook group, I take it, that you started. Where can folks seek that out? The group name is Caregiver Collective, Collective singular, and it's private just so that people feel more comfortable sharing their personal stories without outing themselves in the entire Facebook world. But um, it's growing and people have been sharing their stories and advice and it's been very cool. So I encourage anybody, whether they're a caregiver now or have already gone through the process and has a family member who passed away, to join just to hopefully find some community with other people. Jennifer Levin, her article, I Became My Father's Parent at 32, appears in Cosmopolitan Magazine's online edition. We'll have a link to the article on the AgeWise website, and we will also uh, provide you with information about how to get in touch with Jennifer's closed Facebook page. Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing your story, both here and in the magazine. Keep speaking out. It's wonderful. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. The AgeWise podcast is distributed nationally on the Speak Up Talk radio network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. Yours.